my power laser. Look out. I'm dangerous with this thing. So we come to Zechariah chapter 14. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14, page 1102. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you. Our last chapter in the book of Zechariah, and it's a doozy. It speaks of the last chapter of human history as we know it. This is looking at the very end, how everything plays out in the end. So let's pray. Father, I ask your blessing upon this time. Thank you that you know all things in advance. And I pray that you would use your prophetic word tonight to motivate to warn to encourage Lord we trust you in all things with our very lives and with our futures and our eternal destinies and thank you that you can be our savior Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So all of the prophetic biblical passages indicate that history as we know it is going to end with a massive world war. A huge battle. It's called the Battle of Armageddon by many. Uh, Some are now starting to speak of it as the Campaign of Armageddon. The world dictator, Antichrist, of the last days will gather all of the armies of all of the nations of the last days and gather them to attack the nation of Israel, to destroy Israel, particularly to surround Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem. They will be bent on taking the state of Israel completely out. And there's going to be a battle over that. And our text this morning tells us a lot about that for this evening. Look at verse 1, Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst... For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled or plundered, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So there again, over and over, we've seen in Zechariah verse 2, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem, speaking of this worldwide army, confederation of armies led by the Antichrist. And we find out here that the forces of the Antichrist initially are going to have some success in the early days of this campaign. Israel is going to be hurt. Jerusalem is going to suffer. It says in verse 2, the city shall be taken. Verse 1 says that plunder will be divided among the enemies. Verse 2 says the city shall be taken, the houses rifled or plundered, the women ravished. A horrific result of war. Half the city shall go into captivity But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So in the early stages here, Israel is on the ropes. They're in big trouble. They're surrounded. Half the city of Jerusalem is taken into captivity. Half still has access to Jerusalem. In fact, during the last three and a half years of history, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, 
The Jews will suffer great things. Remember, the Antichrist comes to power by signing this supposed peace agreement with Israel. And then three and a half years into the covenant, breaks it. There's a terrible thing that takes place in Jerusalem. And for the next three and a half years, Jews are hunted down. And the pressure gets greater and greater and greater until the very end here, where they're surrounded and their days within being completely annihilated. But remember, as we studied last week, in their distress, Israel is going to cry out to the Lord. And Zechariah chapter 12 says that they will look upon the one whom they pierced. They will be in this tough spot And they will eventually turn to the Lord. And it's an amazing scripture. The entire nation of Israel is going to recognize who Jesus is. Their Messiah. They're going to repent. Everyone is going to receive Christ among the nation of Israel in the last days. And Zechariah chapter 13 says they will all be saved. God's going to open a fountain of salvation for the Jewish people. So Israel, every one of them, think of it. Every citizen of Israel in the last days, in these last moments of the last days, will come to Christ. And they'll be serious about it. They'll get rid of all the idolatry, all of the false prophets, And this nation that is being pursued and surrounded and it's on the ropes as believers in Christ, they're now going to cry out to the Lord to help. And the Lord is going to hear. Remember what we saw last week. God will begin to intervene in this campaign. First thing he does is he will strike the surrounding Armies with blindness, madness, and confusion. He will disrupt their communications. He will disrupt all of their logistics. We also saw last time that God will make his people super warriors. Give them almost superhuman strength. Jews who are on the outside of the city, as we saw last week, will come to defend Jerusalem and like a spark in a dry wood pile, set things on fire. And within the city of Jerusalem, they'll fight. That half that remains in, they'll fight. And as we saw last week, the weakest soldier in all of Israel will be as mighty as King David was that great man-of-war warrior. So God's going to confuse the enemy. He's going to raise up his people. There's going to be a valiant battle. And then, Christ himself is going to come. In the greatest event of all of human history, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look what it says about that in verse 3. It says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Who's fighting there? The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. Go forth in a military context means this is a king going to war. The Lord will go forth and fight, verse 4, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, and the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. 
the lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. So Jesus is going to descend with his armies and he's going to join the battle. The best description of that event is found in Revelation chapter 19. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he shall strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You know, a lot of people don't picture Jesus that way. There are a lot of people that will... Live their whole life picturing Jesus as the little baby in the manger. Or the quiet little itinerant preacher in Galilee. Oh, he's gentle. Oh, he's loving. And oh, he is kind. But when he comes at the second coming, he comes to judge. And he will destroy all of those forces that have been gathered together by the Antichrist against his people. Skip down to verse 12 real quick. It's another little section that speaks of what will happen. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Yuck. That reminded me of the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you remember that when they melt? It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor, raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, apparel in great abundance. So also shall be the plague on the horse, the mule, camel, donkey, and on the camp cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. That's another description of what happens at the end. There's madness, there's confusion. Warriors of Judah are involved, and Christ comes. And Second Thessalonians tells us that just with the breath of his mouth, he destroys the Antichrist and those that are joined with him. That is where we're headed. Now, I want you to notice that two other things, two other amazing signs are associated with the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes again, there's going to be these just crazy things happening in the heavenlies. So verse 6, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be night. So 
On the day that Jesus Christ comes again in this radical way, it's going to be a day like we've never seen in all of human history. It's really hard to even describe what's going on here in the Hebrew. The idea is that the day is going to be so odd, there won't be like evening and daytime. There will be weird periods of light. It says the bright ones will diminish all the stars... The sun will diminish that day. The moon. Everything will be going crazy in the heavenlies. Jesus said this of his coming again. In Matthew 24, he said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I've always, remember those snow globes that you get at Christmas? I've always pictured God just shaking the whole universe like a snow globe. Everything will go berserk. And everyone, get this, will look up. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So here's how I see it all going down. You got this battle over Jerusalem. Israel comes to the Lord. They cry out. God begins to intervene. And then the lights go out. Everyone looks up. And all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming. And I do believe that it's going to be a slow, well, not too slow, but a slow descent. I think it's going to be something that is absolutely terrifying to those on planet Earth. You know, the rapture, I believe the rapture, it happens before the tribulation, and the church is raptured out of here. You know how long the rapture takes? About one nanosecond. Gone. The second coming of Christ is something that every eye on planet Earth at that time will see. And they will see him approaching. And all of these things in the heavenlies are happening. Now, there's also an, another amazing thing that's going to happen when Jesus comes again. And you only get this from Zechariah. Look at verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the what? The Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north. And half of it toward the south. When Jesus ascended, he ascended from the Mount of Olives. When Jesus touches down a second time, where does he touch down? On the Mount of Olives. And I happen to believe, I think it'll be the exact same spot. The angel told all the disciples who watched Jesus go up, in the same manner you'll see him come back. So something absolutely crazy is going to happen to the Mount of Olives. Now, I want to just give you kind of an overview here. Here's Israel, north, south, west, east. Right in the middle is Jerusalem. Just to the east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. So here's the old city of Jerusalem. To the east, you have the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus is going to touch down. That place is so wonderful. When we go to Israel, it's my favorite stop. We get a spot at the top of the Mount of Olives, and we just look at the most amazing real estate on planet Earth. Here, we like, I like to take us through Matthew 24, the sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. 
This is a picture of our last tour, our whole group on the Mount of Olives. By the way, lots of you have been asking me about doing another tour to Israel. We're going to do one. Israel finally got rid of all their restrictions so we can go. I didn't want to take anybody with all that was going on, but their restrictions are completely gone. When Jesus touches down, an earthquake will split the Mount of Olives from east to west. As it says, half the mountain will go north, half the mountain will go south. And what it's going to create is a valley east to west, a big, deep valley. And it says right here, verse 5, you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. It's going to provide an escape route for all of the Jewish people that are under attack. And it will protect them from the earthquake that happens when Jesus lands. So this is going to be a dramatic way in which God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, saves his people. They will flee through this valley to this place called Azal. A-Z-A-L. Nobody knows definitively where that is. If you know where that is, could you please tell me? <laughs> there are all kinds of ideas. I mean, I've heard of there being secret underground caverns over here. The best bet is it's going to be somewhere in this valley where they can take refuge. So that is just like an incredible detail. The battle's raging. Israel's getting the upper hand. God's fighting. Lights go off. The Son of God appears, travels down, touches on the Mount of Olives. And then all of the forces of the Antichrist are defeated. By the way, this earthquake and this valley is going to be a part of a complete remodeling for the city of Jerusalem. You're going to see that in just a moment. God will use it for that. Now, there's a very important detail at the end of verse 5. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the what? The saints with you. So in many pictures of the second coming of Christ as Jesus comes, he comes and there's an army behind him on white horses. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 19 and here in Zechariah written in 550 BC. The Lord is coming back. And all his saints with him. So who's coming back with Jesus? Whole army. Whole cloud. Well we do know that angels. Will be coming with Jesus. I also believe. That the church. Will be coming back with Jesus. I believe that we get raptured before the tribulation period. We have seven years in heaven. And we accompany. Now, I don't think we're going to be in the battle. But I think we're going to see it all. We're going to have a bird's eye perspective of how all that goes down. So we'll see it from a different perspective. All right. So the battle ends. Jesus comes again. What happens after all of those forces of the Antichrist are destroyed? Well, now look at verse 8. In that day, it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all 
the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And all the land, check this out, shall be turned into a plain. From Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So after this battle is finished, verse 9 tells us exactly what's going to happen. The Lord shall be king over all the what? The earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. So understand, the Bible clearly teaches Jesus Christ comes again and he becomes the king of the whole earth. Not just the king of Israel. Not the mayor of Jerusalem. The king of Of the whole earth. He will reign and rule as king over the whole earth. And we find out from the book of Revelation. How long? A thousand years. That's why we talk often about the millennial kingdom reign of Christ. A 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. The king over all the earth. And the capital city of his kingdom and of the earth will be what city, do you think? Jerusalem. He will rule from Jerusalem on the throne of King David forever, as was prophesied so many times in the Old Testament. Now, the Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom is going to be totally different than it is now. It says in verse 8, In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. So there's going to be a fountain, a freshwater fountain in Jerusalem That erupts. And it's going to create a river of living water that will join the western sea to the eastern sea by way of Jerusalem. And it says right here that it's going to flow all the time. Winter, summer, it will not be dependent upon any rain. So this wonderful living river of water. So what in the world does that look like? Well, here's your Jerusalem. Here's a sea to the west. It's to the east. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. Down here... Oh, that's a place called the Dead Sea. So you got Jerusalem right here. There's a river coming from a living spring of water that will join these two seas by way of Jerusalem. Now, the Dead Sea is named the Dead Sea Because it's dead. It is absolutely dead. The Dead Sea is located at the lowest place on land on the entire earth. The lowest place on earth. 1,387 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,474 feet above sea level. So there's almost a three-quarter of a mile elevation drop from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. 
And when you go, when you go on the road between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, you go down. And you see the most desolate area perhaps you've ever seen since somewhere around El Paso. I mean, it is just desolate, desolate wilderness area. I've been down that road many times. This is the road that takes you from Jerusalem all the way down to the lowest spot on planet Earth. You will actually drive on a road that's called the lowest road on planet Earth. And you go all the way down. On this particular trip, as we were on our way down, there was a lot of dirt on the roads. And you want to know why? Because it had rained in Jerusalem. And whenever it rains in Jerusalem, about three hours, four hours later, all the rainwater just goes all the way down. So you got to be careful. Um, you know, if you're down there in the, in the Dead Sea area, you'll be there with your guide, and they got their phone. And they could get a call that says, hey, it's raining in Jerusalem. You got three hours. And you got to work your way back out. So we go down. We go all the way down. And one of the places we stop at is a place called Masada, which is this incredible military base, ancient. We climb to the top. Actually, we don't climb. We ride a gondola. Last time I was there, it was 115 degrees, so... You probably wouldn't want to climb that mountain. So we go up to the top. And here you get a look from the top. And there's the Dead Sea. There's a much better. Look how desolate. There's the sea. And there's the lowest road. That's the road you take. There's another really cool spot down there we visit every time we go. It's a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is where David hid from King Saul. He went all the way down and he hid out in this place. There's just this little canyon that will go up and it will lead to this freshwater spring. You can't believe it. There's a freshwater spring way up the top of En Gedi and you're like, whoa, it's incredible. It's another good picture of it. So, the Dead Sea is a sea. And we go and we visit it. And last time it was super hot and we got in there and we enjoyed ourselves for the most part. The Dead Sea is almost, it's the most saltiest thing I've ever been in. Believe me, you will feel every cut on your body when you get in the Dead Sea. And it's completely buoyant. You cannot sink. You can't drown in the Dead Sea. You can only float. So there isn't a living thing in that sea. It's really a, a, an interesting place. They, they mine it. They take oils out of it. Um, there's a whole bunch of products that are made from the Dead Sea, from all the salt and minerals. You can go down there and put some of it on your face and do the whole spa thing. It's really an interesting place. But I got to tell you, it's dead. It's desolate. In the kingdom age, when Jesus is on the throne, here's Jerusalem. There will be this river that goes from the Mediterranean Sea through Jerusalem probably dumping a little bit upstream here, which is the Jordan River, which, by the way, flows up to the Sea of Galilee. Living water. The Dead Sea is going to become alive. The Bible predicts that it's going to be breaming with life. There's going to be fish. It's going to be this beautiful place. The Bible also teaches that this living water is going to bring lush vegetation all throughout the land. Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. 
Isaiah 35 says, The parched grounds shall become a pool. The thirsty land will become springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. It's going to be an incredible change. You notice in verse 10, all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon. Jerusalem shall be raised up. This picture tries to show that there's going to be a complete rearrangement of the, the geography. All the land south and north of Jerusalem is going to be leveled. It's going to become a plain. Jerusalem itself is going to be raised up. Higher than the highest hills in that area. With the living water. And all of that taking place. And that's how it will look for a thousand years. The capital city. So it's really cool. If you can go on our next tour, you'll get to see Jerusalem before the great remodeling happens, right? So you'll get to remember exactly what it looked like at one point. So Jesus reigns and rules there. Now the Isaiah the prophet says, very key prophecy concerning the millennial kingdom. Now it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. So literally, physically. All nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from where? From Jerusalem. So here's what the Bible teaches. During the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, he literally reigns in this brand new Jerusalem, and all the nations of the earth will flow. All will come to him. He will judge matters. Look what it says in verse 16. Here of chapter 14. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. Shall go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of the tabernacle. Now, I just find that so interesting. In the millennial reign, as Jesus is the king, every year they will celebrate this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And every year, all the nations or delegations of every nation will be required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate That feast. The feast of tabernacles. Now the question being, why would it be the feast of tabernacles? I think there's a good reason. There are seven feasts that God commanded his people to keep. And I believe six of them, you can find fulfillment in what has already happened. Passover was fulfilled in the death of Christ. The first fruits was fulfilled as his resurrection. The week-long feast of unleavened bread is fulfilled in the life of the church today as believers walk in holiness. Pentecost was filled in Acts chapter 2. The feast of trumpets, I believe, will be fulfilled before the kingdom begins. And I believe the feast of trumpets will literally be filled at the rapture when the trumpet comes. And then the day of atonement will be fulfilled when the nation of Israel sees her Messiah repents. The Feast of Tabernacles always seems to foreshadow the joyful and fruitful kingdom age. So it will be celebrated every year as part of the kingdom age. All the nations 
will have to send a delegation. Now check this out. Look at verse 17. It shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. (laughs) If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So you read this right. In the, in, in the millennial reign of Christ, all will be required to go keep the Feast. And if you don't go, you get in trouble. You don't get rain. So this is interesting. What does this tell us? about those thousand years during the millennial reign. Well, it tells us that there's going to be some people alive that might not want to obey Christ, even though they can see him. And you say, well, how is that possible? When Jesus comes again, we come with him. We're in our glorified bodies. We're there. We're helping him in some way rule the world. I think we're all given different positions. Um, As I've said before, I've asked for Hawaii. I don't know if I'm going to get it. But um, actually, I think everywhere on planet Earth will be beautiful during the millennium. Old Testament saints will be there, glorified. Tribulation saints, all those that died during the tribulation, will be there, resurrected, glorified bodies. When Jesus comes again, all non-believers that had joined forces with the Antichrist, they're dead. They're gone. But when Jesus comes again, there will be survivors that believed in him. From every nation. And they're going to go into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years with bodies just like the ones we have right now. They'll be able to marry, have kids. They'll repopulate. Now we know in the millennial reign of Christ, people will live longer. People won't get sick. And there will be a great repopulation of the earth. But you're going to have a lot of, you're going to have a lot of people in the human race that have sinful natures. Filling up planet earth. At a time when Jesus physically reigns on the earth. And some of them. Showing their rebellion. By their own free will. Will reject Christ even at a time like that. And in fact at the end of the millennial reign. If you remember Jesus. lets Satan out of his cage. And he goes out and he's able to. Deceive all these people who have already said in their heart they don't want anything to do with Christ. And there's a final rebellion attempt, and Christ ends it at that point. So, God always gives people in every age free will. And by our own free will, we should choose Him. By your own free will today, you should choose him. Ask him to be your savior. Verse 20, to finish it up. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So holiness will describe every aspect of millennial kingdom. Righteousness. Truth and justice. When King Jesus rules, there will be holiness. And righteousness and true justice. It says, 
Holiness to the Lord will be engraved on the bells that the horses wear. Now, what does that mean? That means in, in your normal commercial activity, in the, in the comings and goings on the highways, holiness to the Lord will be there. It says, holiness to the Lord will be engraved on the common pots and pans that everybody uses in their kitchen. The idea being that in the kingdom age, there will be no difference between secular and sacred. All will be holy. Justice, righteousness. King Jesus will rule for a thousand years. He will bring an end to wickedness. And then after millennial reign, as far out as you can see into eternity from the Bible standpoint, there will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we go into an eternal environment that we can't even conceive of. But I promise you, you will live happily ever after. As you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I get blessed when I study prophecy because I like to know what's coming. Don't you? Don't you want to know what's coming? And I I do want to know what's coming. And I also want to know how close we are to it and what days in which we live. And there's another reason why I love to celebrate prophecy, to study it. Closure. Closure. One day, the Lord is going to make all things new. One day, all wickedness will be judged and gone. One day, there will be no more death. And there will be no more sickness. And there will be no more tragedy. Gang, listen, we live in a fallen world. The human race is a sinful race and we live in a fallen world. And even as, I mean, as Christians, we've given our lives to Christ and our sins have been washed away and we're forgiven and there's no better life. But we still live in a fallen world, don't we? And there are ugly things that you have to encounter There are things that happen in life that I don't even know why. Why a young person is taken away from us in cancer. Why so-and-so got shot. Why so-and-so got sick. Why certain people who are totally wicked seem to get away with it. Why is the devil, why is he able to continue to do all of his damaging work? And it gets frustrating and you think, man, this is tough. Hey, listen, closure's coming. Jesus said, I'm going to make all things new. And you just read the game plan. You can see what's going to happen. So I want to I encourage you that as we... As we Conclude the study and the book of Zechariah. No matter how hard it gets here, no matter how hard, no matter what you see, no matter how frustrating you get, no matter all the amount of injustice that you see, you remember if you belong to the Lord, justice is coming. All's going to be made right, and everything will be made brand new one day. So you stay encouraged and living your life, remembering that live for Christ so that others can come to know him. Work hard for him because there's many that need to come to him yet.
and also be warned. God is a God of grace and love and his kindness is amazing and we think of all that he did at the cross. Look to the extent that he went so that we could be saved. He knows all the all the terrible things. Look what he did to save it. So you give your life to Christ now by your own free will. And you'll be ready. Let's close. Would you close your eyes with me and bow your heads? Father, I do thank you that you are the God who knows all, you see all. Nothing's hidden. Thank you, Lord, that you are victorious. And I thank you, Lord, that you have prolonged time so that people still have time by their own free will to receive you, to surrender before you. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, the second coming of Christ totally amazing event but another amazing event is the resurrection where Jesus after dying on the cross for the sins of the world rose again and he's alive the Bible says you place your faith and trust in him and all of your sins will be forgiven and he will save you now and forevermore You need to surrender your life to him, though. Have you received him? If not, do it right now. Do it right now. Ask Christ to to wash away all your sins. Put your faith and trust in him alone for your salvation. If that's you, you cry out to the Lord. Lord, save me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I, I want to be in your family. I want to be in your kingdom. Come into my life and change me. And help me to live for you. Every day, every day you give me is a gift here to live. Lord, let me live it for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.